Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and thank you for joining me today. I am loving this show. I loved the last hour, and now I have my friend, Dr. Mark Muska, sitting across the studio from me. And that, oh, he just, <laughs> I can't even tell you what he just did. Don't anyway, you love radio? I do. I do. <laughs> that, <laughs> all right. So let's uh, have Ask the Professor hour. So you let me know what your question, questions are. You He's can really send, flustered. I am a little flustered right yeah. now. It's, you can send him over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Mark, I was saying uh, to you in the green room that I've been trying to read slowly through the Gospels. That's as, great. As slowly as I can. Sometimes we buzz them. There's value to that, too. Yeah. Of getting a quick overview in one sitting and, and buzzing through it pretty fast. But there's value to reading the Scripture at different rates of uh, speed that you see things, your eyes pick up on things. It's amazing, isn't it? You can read a passage 25 times, and the 26th time you go, whoa, where did that come from? So reading it slowly does make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we depend on the Holy Spirit, too. That's the the idea that we call the illumination of the Spirit, where, you know, do you illumine a room, you turn on the light. Yeah, right. Well, he turns on the light inside our head to see what's there. It's been there the whole time, but God alerts us to certain things and we go, whoa, I haven't ever seen that before. Yeah. Well, you have, but you really didn't see it. And then when we hear stories or we read parts of scripture, and I think sometimes we, I, I'll speak for myself, my brain will fill in a blank that mm-hmm. may not in fact be true, mm-hmm. but it'll fill in a blank anyway. Yep. Here's an example. Luke chapter uh, four, mm-hmm. it talks about Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he just got baptized, right? Yep. And he's, he left the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness. Yep where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. The way my brain used to fill in the story was Jesus was led into the desert. After 40 days where he's hungry, he encounters Satan. And the other night I was reading this going, wait a minute, 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So maybe he was tempted every one of those 40 days by the devil. The specific thing with the bread, you know, if you're the son of God, you can turn these stones into bread. Right. That is said in verse 2. It says he ate nothing during those days, the 40 days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And that's when the devil tempts him. So at least for that one, it comes after the 40 days. Right. But I'm saying if he's being tempted by Satan throughout all 40 of those right. days, that's a different story in my head all of a sudden. It is, yeah. It, it doesn't mean that uh, Satan's taking a snooze or something for 40 days. Right. That he's after him the whole time. Right. So... um it is, uh, it's interesting to read slow, slowly. Yeah. That whole interplay between Jesus and Satan is intriguing, and people have really speculated about it. Uh, what, was, uh, what was happening with Satan when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and pouring out his heart to the Father? What was happening when Jesus was on the cross? Mm-hmm. What role did he have there? Lots of really uh, good art, uh, video, movies, 
uh, have tried to portray that and fill in the blanks. It's something we forget, Bill, that reading the text of Scripture, there is a whole lot left out. You don't have anything visual that you can identify with. You are Mm -hmm. listening to something. Radio is a great illustration of that. You have no idea what things look like, like in the studio right now, or when Jesus is doing this, you have to go by how it's described audibly or just reading the page because we don't even have it audible. Uh, I'm sure that Luke and Matthew and these guys, when they wrote this, if they would have recited it out loud, they would have put pauses and emphasis and tone changes up like this and then down by this and all this kind of thing. That would have added more than just reading the word off of the printed page. So uh, sometimes that doesn't occur to us. There's a lot of gaps that are that remain and mm-hmm. We have to be careful not to let our imagination get out of control, but it does tell us that that it, we have to be careful and not uh, go too far in, in in this. At the same time, though, Bill, I tell my students, with these Gospels, get in there and try to place yourself at the scene. See this, what's going on. Smell the smells. Hear the sounds in the background. Try to plant yourself as much as you can in that setting so that you can understand what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And as I'm doing my slow reading of the Gospels, uh, back in Luke uh, 4, Mark, it says, yeah. uh, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this mm-hmm. tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Yeah. I think, whoa. So if he's waiting for an opportune time with Jesus, yeah. what is he doing with us? Yeah. He's just kind of lurking. Oh, it's so Jesus. creepy. Yeah. Isn't that something? Oh, yeah. It's really creepy. Right. But that we have evidence that these powers and principalities, the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Paul calls them in Ephesians 6, that they're after us and they are scheming and they intend to bring us down to destroy uh, God's people. And they're very crafty. Uh, Thankfully, they're very much fallen. And so they do kind of dumb things sometimes because that corruption of, of... interferes with them probably being as as effective as they could be. But uh, this is, it's a sobering thing. Uh, classic works like C.S. Lewis's uh, Screwtape Letters really brought that out for a lot of people to mm. think about how demons are plotting against us to bring us down. Mm-hmm. In Mark uh, 14, mm-hmm. there is the conversation uh, Jesus has with Peter and Peter, ins- this is verse 31, Mark, mm-hmm. uh, but Peter insisted emphatically, even <laughs> if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Right. There is a full commitment. Don't you love the passion? You know, <laughs> oh, boy. It, it, yeah. it, it's there. He's all in. Yeah. Uh, what, are we, what can we learn from this? What's the, what's the, what's the understanding? <laughs> Keep your mouth shut more, you know? I mean, that, <laughs> that would be a good one. <laughs> so, you know, he, he does have uh, the, the ability to put his foot in his mouth and uh, talk now and think later sometimes. So, but I, I admire him. Uh, he's such a human being, and uh, he's got all those weaknesses. Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John 13, and he says, nope. You're not going to do that to me. And Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you're not part of me. Oh, well, then wash all of me. Mm-hmm. He said, no, you don't need a bath. I'm just going to wash your feet. And so there's just almost a childlike enthusiasm that is going on there. He's, he's, he's fun to, to try to picture in your head. 
it's fascinating how you can go from uh, I, even if I have to die with you, I will. Yeah. And it just wasn't. But hours later, he was bailing. Yeah. Little servant girl. Well, yeah, in I mean. the high priest's house. Why at, was he so threatened by the little servant girl? Because he was scared. Hmm. How can you be such a weasel so fast? Oh, well, let's follow you around for a while, and then <laughs> how about you follow me around for a while, and uh, just about anybody else, you know, given the wrong kind of circumstances, yeah. we can be weaselly. Yeah, yeah, okay, good point, good point. Uh, here's a question. I'm reading through the Old Testament. Can Mark expound on tormenting spirit from the Lord, First Samuel 19.9? Yeah. What's yeah. up with that? That's interesting. That's after... Uh, the context for this is is Saul, the first king of Israel, has uh, screwed up, and the kingdom's being torn from him. And in First uh, Samuel uh, uh, eighteen, the the uh, the spirit is given to David when he's anointed. I'm sorry, in First Samuel sixteen, and uh, it says here Samuel uh, is anointed as the next king by Samuel in the presence of his brothers, which is worth talking about too. But in verse 13, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose, went to Ramah. And the Spirit of the Lord, verse 14, departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And you're going, oh, wait, 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 wait. An evil spirit from the Lord? Mm -hmm. How's that work? Yeah. I thought God was good. And how can he be sending an evil spirit? to do something like this. Should we save that answer for our premium content? Maybe. Are you going to make people give money or something here to, <laughs> well, to do No, this? I was just dying to get this answer. I thought this oh. is this is going to be oh. an interesting answer. Well, we don't know for sure. I mean, we have to try to speculate. It's okay. when we get behind the curtain here of these spiritual forces and this spiritual reality going on in right right in our midst, but we can't perceive it. We have to do some speculating. I think the best I've ever been able to come up with this bill is that the demons were ready to get Saul always. It was just, they were ready to get him, but God prohibited him. And now when it says an evil spirit from the Lord, I like, I like using this analogy. I think we've used it before where these demons, they're like a really nasty dog on a leash. I mean, pick your poison, Rottweiler, mm-hmm. Doberman, vicious. And they see Saul over there and they're just snarling and the saliva is running down but God's got him on a leash. Well, the evil spirit of the Lord is when he lets go of the leash and he lets that demon do what he desires to do. So it's, you can say in fairness that this is from the Lord because he is permitting it, but it's not like this is what, what God is initiating here. This is what these demons want to do with all of us. Thankfully, uh, God's got them all on leashes with us as much as he does allow us so that we're protected. And we pray that way. Put put a fence around us. God, help us to resist the temptations and the schemes of the demons, the devils. Take a little break. When we come back, we have uh, Dr. Mark Muska ask the professor. So let me know what your questions are. We'll get them answered. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. You can, of course, ask anything you like. You can be anonymous. You can also, if you like, email instead of texting. You can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com.
You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. New mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. So glad to have Dr. Mark Muska with me. Always fun to hang out with my friend despite what goes on in the studio. Nobody's set telling. <laughs> I want no to tell. there's no video surveillance, too. That no. is really <laughs> scary. There's no video Again, I'm against the cameras in here. Oh, man. Yeah. I'll take $5, Mark, not to tell. I uh, saw it. There's yeah. a witness. We're going to have to pay it's, off Rosie. Huh? It's good, playful fun, just so you know. What, yeah. what happens in the studio stays in the studio. Exactly. All right, here's a question. Uh, David wants to know, we don't really talk much about the providence of God. Can you please explain this concept? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's uh, a great question. This, yeah. uh, in fact, uh, I'm teaching a summer school uh, theology class, and we were just talking about that today as part of the work of God. Uh, the idea of providence, this is a theological idea. It, it's also a city in Rhode Island, but it's an idea that uh, God effectively accomplishes his purposes. We usually connect this with God's decrees or God's will, where God, you know, like a king would make a decree and they'd put it in the town square, you know, that the king decrees this is going to happen. He wills that something's going to happen. God wills that something's going to happen. He decrees it, and then he accomplishes it through his providence. So these two hold hands with one another that God's providence is when he effectively carries out his intentions. His decrees describe his intentions. His providence carries it out. One of my favorite books for this, it's such a fun story, and kids know it from Flannel Graph when they're in Sunday school, is uh, Jonah, of course, mm-hmm. and, the, and the fish. If you read that story, God's providence is all over that thing. Because remember the story, God tells Jonah, hey, get up and go to Nineveh and cry out against it. And Jonah goes, uh-uh, and he goes the other way to Tarshish, takes a boat, and runs off, right? But then Jonah, the writer, is very specific where he says, then God appointed a storm. He hurled a storm at the ship. It's like a left-hander in baseball. He threw a curveball through mm-hmm. the wind there, and the ship was in this terrible storm. And so the, as the story plays out, uh, Jonah gets tossed overboard by the sailors, He tells him to do that, and then it says, God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. And then he's talking from the belly of the fish in chapter 2, and then after that, God appoints the fish to barf up Jonah on dry ground. And so Jonah delivers his message. He goes outside the city. God appointed a plant to grow over Jonah so that he would have shade, and he was very grateful for the plant. But then he appointed a worm to attacked the plant, and it killed it, and it withered. And Jonah wasn't happy about that at all. And then God appointed a scorching each wind. You see what's happening here? He is accomplishing his purposes with Jonah. Mm -hmm. Jonah's going to get his carcass to Nineveh one way or another. God's (laughs) decreed that. And so he wants to run providentially. He's just He's just making them go. He can't get away. You want to run the other way? Well, I got a fish for you, pal. You know, I'm going to get you there any way I need to. So all of these actions that God takes is accomplishing his purposes for Jonah. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best 
and vivid illustrations. No, I just absolutely love the story of Jonah. I love the book. Yeah. And I love in verse uh, 4 of chapter 3, when Jonah began by doing a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's a, yeah. there's a sermon. Right there. Not very inspired, right? Well, it's the shortest sermon in the book, Bible. Okay. Uh, but look at the results. All he says, yeah. Look at the results. Well, that's, that's kind of fun. I think it's a, a literary thing that uh, the writer's doing there. Because when you look at it, Jonah, little itty-bitty, little message. Mm-hmm. Reaction, great yeah. big reaction. Right. That even the king of repents, he puts sackcloth and ashes on the cows. The animals get saved, don't they? And they <laughs> can you imagine this poor embarrassed cow? Yeah, right. He's got sackcloth and ashes, yeah. and you go, moo. Yeah, right. Moo. Yeah. I, I am humiliated. What moo. are we supposed to learn from that? What, from the cows? No, no, not from the cows. Oh. From, from Jonah's sermon. I mean, I think there's something in Christianity that always says we, we always have to be so excited about everything, right? right. And I think, well, Jonah wasn't excited, but yet... <laughs> He walks in, you know, it probably would have been a three-day walk into Nineveh, mm-hmm. and he stops after one day and, and barks out the sermon, everyone gets saved. Yeah. It tells you God's Word is powerful. That's what I mean. When he gives something, itty-bitty, litty message, great big response. <laughs> yeah. The other thing about Providence I wanted to point out too, Bill, is there's two different avenues that Providence can go. There's something that you probably would call direct Providence when God intervenes and actually does something. So like this fish, he takes this fish and he appoints him to swallow Jonah. That's a direct kind of action of God to accomplish his purposes. But then theologians have also figured out there's another kind of providence that we call concurrent providence. And what this is, is that God accomplishes his purposes through the world and the forces and the way that he has set up the world. I like to use the illustration of this with someone who may be sick with cancer. God providentially can bring that person back to health, but he can do it two different ways. He can have someone in the church or the elders come and anoint this person, lay hands on them and pray over them, and they're healed. And this is God providentially healing this person from that sickness. That's one way. But he can do it concurrently, too, through things like the radiation and the chemo and the skill of the doctors and the chemicals that they have discovered, the way God's world works, and it's effective. And his cancer goes into remission. And so you would say, this is providential, but it's not like God directly intervening in. He uses the world and the forces in the world the way he has set them up to accomplish his purposes. And he works that pl- way plenty of times. So this this explains for me why people can say, have you ever seen this uh, when a baby's born and everybody's just swooning and they're saying, oh, it is just such a miracle the birth of that baby, you know, and then you got your sourputh over there saying, ah, it's not a miracle. It happens all the time. God didn't do that. But yeah, yes, he did because it's concurrent. The way that he's made a woman's body work and all of that mm-hmm. is just marvelous how he uses that to accomplish his purposes for that little squirt to get born the way that it does. So you bet that's providential, but it's concurrent with the way he set up the world. Mm-hmm. Great answer. That's a really interesting uh, little sidetrack we, we went on. Yeah. Talking about Jonah. I could talk about Jonah the rest of the hour. Oh, it's fun. It's so fun. Did I tell you I've got a grandson? I've got three. Yeah. And one's named Jonah. I know. Yeah. And Ezra. Yep. And I got a, I got a prophet with Jonah. I got a priest with Ezra. And I got a judge with Gideon. <laughs> that's right. So <laughs> that's the way I keep him straight. Right. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Uh, follow up. Uh, Question, I always thought the tormenting spirit from the Lord was a spirit similar to the one 
of the angels seen in Revelation that was pouring out bowls of wrath. Oh, maybe. I mean, they're not identified specifically with any okay. kind of proper name or anything, but it's certainly possible. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Mark, how do I answer people who ask, how can God say, thou shalt not kill, and yet order people to kill even women and children in combat? Yeah, that is really a good question. It usually comes up, especially with books like Joshua, where Joshua comes into the land that God has promised Israel, and they destroy everybody when yeah. they conquer that land, the Canaanites and the Amorites. Uh, God, the technical word that's used for it, the expression in the Old Testament, is that God puts these people under the ban. And what that means is everything is banned. They kill everyone. They don't take any spoil, no animals, no silver and gold or anything. It's all banned from Israel. Why did he do that? Well, it helps to read the book of Genesis. And this is a very rare thing. I've got to be really careful, Hebrew, because the, it, at very select times in human history, God has used human agency to enact his judgment. But he doesn't do it very often. And you can get in at a really deep hole if you're not careful to say that somebody gets murdered. Well, that's God's judgment against this sinner. You know, I will never say something like that. But in this case with Joshua, in Genesis, God made this clear to Abraham way back in Genesis 15 that his people would go into Egypt for uh, uh, four centuries, and then God would bring them back out and give them this land, the land of the Canaanites and the Amorites. And then he says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet completed, that these people living in that land were devoted to evil and wickedness, and God was patient with them for 400 years. But then he used Joshua and the people of Israel to judge these people. And so it was an act of conquest of the land, but it was also God's action of judgment against these people. But I got to say it again, this is exceptionally rare, and it is not something that we can just appoint ourselves to understand that, well, this is God's judgment. Remember back when AIDS started in the United States and people Mm -hmm. were dying, God's judgment against people's sexual morality and their sexual lifestyle. And it's like, you don't know that. This is nothing that's been declared explicitly. You, you're way ahead of the story here, and you gotta you gotta bring it back. So, uh, this is this is something awful when uh, women and children die, and God is sanctioning this kind of thing. But there's always some very exceptional circumstances around it. It, mm-hmm. it isn't just happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Doctor Mark Mosca is my guest. Ask the professor. Let me know what your questions are. You can text them. 877-933-2484. You can also email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Give you the number one more time, 877-933-2484. Be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Drive time, let's get it 
Welcome to an hour of Ask the Professor. Uh, my professor is my friend, Dr. Mark Muska, and let me know what your questions are. Got some great ones coming in. Let's get to them. The texting number is 877-933-2484. Let's see, Mark, this question, I've already lost it. Uh, here we go. Referring to Genesis 6, do we believe mm-hmm. that angels can reproduce, or were these not angels? Yeah, that is a great question. I wish I could give you a really definitive answer. I'm not going to be able to do it. If you read any kind of scholarly reviews of Genesis 6, you'll get no less than about five or six different interpretations of this, of people trying to understand it. I'll read it here, first of all. In verse 1, the uh, uh, the text says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he's also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And then verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These are the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And right after that passage, it goes into the wickedness of the earth and God's saying, I'm going to destroy the whole business. I'm sorry I made it. But then Noah found, uh, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But what is that that we're talking about here? We can start, Bill, by saying this phrase, the sons of men, it is used in other places in the Bible. In the book of Job, it's used, for example, for uh, angelic beings. Okay, so it's something that we can say, yeah, uh, most likely of uh, spiritual beings here. But then what kind of sense are we uh, supposed to make out of this? That the daughters of men, uh, the sons of God came into the daughters of men and took wives for themselves. There's just one problem after the other. If these are spirit beings, demonic beings who are taking these women, this is the only place in the Bible where it ever talks about them being married. I mean, can you imagine taking... Uh, you know, having your daughter go down the aisle with a demon uh, to formally marry the woman. It would be different if it said that the demon went and knew the woman or had sexual relations with her, but it says that he they married. So that causes a problem uh, with this. Secondly, there's no indication anywhere, in fact, Jesus speaks against it, that uh, angelic beings, both elect and demonic, can reproduce it all. That he gets into this in the New Testament. Jesus does, talking about when we're in heaven, we're not married or given in marriage. We're like the angels in heaven. So the, there's uh, there's none of this kind of thing anyway. So what are we supposed to make out of this? I could talk the rest of the hour on this, but I don't want to. I'll, I'll, I think the thing that makes the most sense to me is is that there were very powerful men on the earth that were wicked, and they saw these women and they went into them, but there was also a demonic presence in these men. So that it was, uh, what do you, whatever you want to call it, demonized men, demon-possessed men, who then married these women, and they were great rulers because they were big and strong and mighty. In those days, in hand-to-hand combat, the bigger you were, the more successful you were. You weren't able to just pull out a Glock or a, a handgun and kill somebody that's 6'6", 300 pounds. So sword in their hand, they're going to be hard to beat. But in this case, these mighty men married these women, but... It sounds like there was a demonic 
assistance in all of this with the phrase, the sons of God being brought into this. So I don't know if that makes any sense at all. I'm not sure I even believe all of that either. I mean, it's very difficult to arrive at an answer. And Moses writing this too, please, Moses, why can't you use a couple more verses here and explain yourself? But then he just jumps right in with God and Noah and the ark and the whole business. Mm-hmm. So we just have to be content about it. I think the answer God gives us is, that's all I'm giving you because I don't want you getting sidetracked on that. I want you to hear about Noah and the ark here. So things are missing in the Bible intentionally. They're not important enough for God to address. Mm-hmm. Mark, maybe you can connect these dots. This question is mm-hmm. in Genesis when God says man shall uh, be limited to 120. Yes. Doesn't make sense for how long men lived after that. Yeah. It, it, the, the way that's usually understood, Bill, is it's it's a limit that's approximate, but it's not like there's some timer going, and when you have your 120th birthday, you know, pew, over you go, okay. and, and you're dead. But up to this point, if you look at the genealogy right behind this in Genesis 5, these guys were living into the 700s, 800s, and 900s. Mm-hmm. And so this is a dramatic shortening of the human lifespan here to bring it down into 120 years. But I would say that's a that's a ballpark for these people. Mm-hmm. Here's a question about Second Kings. The body was thrown into Elisha's tomb, and when it touched the bones, it came alive. Mm-hmm. What is the purpose of this random short story that doesn't seem to fit in? Again, it's it's not explained thoroughly. Okay. It's a phenomenon that took place, so we can count on it being true because it's recorded in the Scripture. But the the purpose of it all, uh, we're, we're left scratching our heads for the most part. And if the Bible doesn't explain it clearly, uh, heaven help me if I try to explain it clearly. Mm-hmm. I, I've got to respect the ambiguity that God leaves with that story. Mm-hmm. But it definitely jumps off the page, doesn't it? Yeah, wow. it does. I haven't heard anything like that happening before. Mm-hmm. Here's a question about Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. I will read it. Sure. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with his singing. So, sounds like God is singing over us. Yeah. My translation, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And so maybe joyful singing or shouts of joy. But that's kind of fun, isn't it? To yeah. say that this is uh, this is something to celebrate in the eyes of God, of his people, and him guarding us and, and uh, watching over us, being a victorious victor and warrior over us. That's, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Is the church overly consumed with eschatology and prophecy? Nope. <laughs> Next. And yeah. No, no, that's I can, fine. I can say more about that. Uh, the, the times we live in right now in 2022, it's kind of a low tide for eschatology. Eschatology is a study of Jesus' return, the end times, the last things. Uh, we're kind of in a low ebb right now. When I was first a Christian back in the 1970s, oh, baby, the tide was high. Mm-hmm. Everybody was studying prophecy. Churches would have prophecy conferences in those. the middle of the week, like Tuesday, Wednesday, 30. They'd pack their churches. They'd bring in these speakers like uh, Josh McDowell or uh, the late great planet Earth with Hal Lindsey and some of these people, and people were absolutely captivated by it. I love the way the theologian Millard Erickson talks about this, where he says, 
because when it comes to eschatology, you've got eschatomaniacs and you've got eschatophobics. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's really good. Because eschatomaniacs, I mean, everything revolves around end time stuff. They've got, they open their Bible and end times charts flat, fall out of their Bibles. You know, they're just all in with the study of this. And eschatophobics, it's like they break out in a rash if they even talk about these end time things. They don't understand it. They don't want to be uh, captured by it. I hope that our Bible-believing Christian friends out there are somewhere in the middle of that, Mm -hmm. that there is really good reasons for studying eschatology, but there's so much that can take over and and in an unhealthy kind of a way, captivate us thinking and speculating about things that the Bible really doesn't spell out in real great detail. And we've got to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. There are certain things about eschatology we can take to the bank. Jesus is coming back, okay? Mm-hmm. That The Bible's unequivocal about that. And when he comes back, there's going to be a great resurrection where we're going to be with the Lord always, the Bible tells us. No doubt about that. And then on the dark side of things, there's going to be an awful judgment where every person who's ever lived is going to have to give account to God for the life they've lived. And that is going to be brutal for a lot of people. But Mm -hmm. the Bible doesn't equivocate on that at all. So that's the kind of stuff we need to concentrate on to say there is a day of judgment coming, but today's not that day. Today's a day to believe the gospel. So prepare yourself for what's coming. That's a legitimate thing to to proclaim. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's a question, Mark. When Jesus lived on earth, did he study and memorize the Bible passages as other believers need to do, or did he automatically know the entire Bible since he was God? Yeah, that, you know, you can have some fun with that. Uh, Yeah. Can you imagine being in a Bible recitation contest with Jesus? You know, you're just doomed. No, you know, I think you're right. You're not going to win it. No. So uh, he he knows the thing, and he can be over there if he ever had pride, but pride's a sin, so he wasn't proud, but he could say, you know, I wrote this, you know, I know it, I've got it. Uh, but having said that, Bill, he was very typical for Israel in Nazareth at that period of time, and so we have to conclude that he probably went through the same kind of religious training that all the young boys did at that time, where they devoted themselves to the study and the memorization of Torah, and they uh, prepared themselves to uh, follow the Lord uh, through their life. And so how his knowledge grew and developed, we just have to leave that alone. Uh, it, it gets You can even take this back a little bit uh, further with this to say, okay, Jesus is born in, they put him in the manger, and laying there in the manger, does he know who he is? Is he able to look up at Mary and go, yo, mama, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. If he's God, he has to be aware of that, doesn't he? But then he's human too. And this is where the two of these things make it very difficult to understand exactly how it worked. Because mm-hmm. every indication we get is, in fact, Luke tells us in, I believe it's uh, uh, Luke two fifty two. he says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with both God and man. So he grew. That yeah. means he developed, and he his knowledge increased. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna we're gonna get ourselves tied in knots if we push this stuff too far. We have to. The, the The church has always affirmed that Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man, and he's only one person. And those two natures are united in one person. And how that works, and the details of that. You better be careful Mm -hmm. because you're just going to get yourself painted in a corner if you try to push that too far.
Additional comment came in. I thought 120 was the number of years before the flood took place. No. Okay. That that's that's right on top of the statement there about the flood. Well, you could say that he put that on there, but that's something new in Genesis mm-hmm. in Genesis six. Here's a really interesting question, and I don't know what you'll do with this, Mark. So okay. I, I probably will, say I don't know. I get that, but I'll ask it, then I'll hang up and listen, right? Okay. <laughs> a lot of times in the Bible, uh, you hear, who are you, Lord? But is there any place in the Bible that addresses, why are you? Is there any place in Scripture, why is God? I don't know what the point of a question like that is. Okay. So. Yeah. I, I just thought the question came in, and I thought it's kind of interesting. Why are you? Why are you? I would guess that God would probably answer a question like that by saying, I am that I am. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably a great, great answer That's his that. name after all. Yeah. Yeah, good. I'm going to take a little break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Let me know what your questions are. Text them over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. I'll be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. Ask the professor. I know you got questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. Um, Mark, let's talk about, uh, let's see, what is it? Ephesians 3.19, mm-hmm. the question is, what is the fullness of God? Yeah, boy, that's a really good question. It sounds really good. It does. I'm, it? I'm curious to hear what you're going to well, say. Well, I, I just looked at the context of this. This is in the middle of one of Paul's coolest prayers in the world. He's got some beauties in Ephesians. There's a really good one in Ephesians 1. But now in Ephesians 3, he prays. Listen to what he says. I'm going to start in verse 14. The the verse is 17 that you're talking about. But Paul says, Ephesians 3, 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Wow. Wow, that's beautiful. It's so strong and powerful, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Getting all three people of the Trinity involved with that. So all the fullness of God means that you get as much of God as you can take, because God would destroy us if he he gave us more than that. So everything that we're able to receive from God, of the knowledge of him and the fellowship with God that comes with that, and the Spirit and the Son, wow, Mm -hmm. that's, that's really fun. 
So in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, be very careful then how mm-hmm. you live, not yep. as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Yep. That apply to today? You bet. I thought so. Why not, huh? Okay, everyone's making faces at me in the studio today. Really? Yeah, Rosie just made a face at me. She did? Like I was asking her a super obvious question. It, it kind of was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, here... Well, you're, you're getting harassed here, I am. I'm getting today? harassed. Yeah. Why yeah. is this so much fun, though? It Why is. is it so much fun for us, Mark? Yeah, well, he just starts stuttering. You know? <laughs> 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 All right. We're picking on poor Bill. That's okay. I'm sorry, All right, Bill. there's a question in reference to Luke 12.10. What exactly is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, Ooh. and how can it be that that is the only unforgivable sin? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the context of this is that, uh, let me check this out. I'm used to dealing with this uh, in the book of Matthew, because, uh, let's see here, Luke doesn't, uh, he doesn't give you the context here of where that came in. Luke just kind of drops this in in verse ten, as as part of the warnings that God uh, that Jesus is giving to these people. And so, if uh, the listener doesn't mind, I'm going to run over to the parallel passage of this in Matthew's gospel because Jesus brings this up because of something he does and the reaction of the of the Jews to it. So. Here we go. In uh, uh, Matthew, let's see here. I'm losing my place. Anyway, I can tell you the story that Jesus uh, comes across a man who is both uh, blind and cannot speak, and it's because he's demonized. And so Jesus casts the demon out of this man so that he can both uh, speak and see. And he does this, and it just absolutely uh, flattens the crowd. They are just blown away by this. And they start saying things like, oh, uh, could this be the Messiah that just did this? So, yeah, I, I do have it here. This is in uh, this is in Matthew chapter 12. I don't have my usual Bible here today, so I'm not finding things like I usually do. But uh, listen to what it says here. The multitudes, when Jesus heals this man who was blind and couldn't speak, all the multitude, verse 23, were amazed, began to say, this cannot be the son of David, can it? That's Messiah. When the Pharisees heard that, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. The the Pharisees were trapped. They couldn't deny the miracle. It was too obvious, too spectacular. So what did they do? They denied the source of the miracle. Mm. They said, this was not divine power. This was demonic power that this guy now can see and talk. And they just crossed a big time line with Jesus. I don't know if they knew it or not, but he's going to let them know right now. And first of all, he he ridicules them. And he says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? In other words, he's saying Satan doesn't fight Satan. Satan fights God. This guy was demonized. So Satan's not going to attack his own demons. This is coming from the hand of God. Jesus says the finger of God is among you when this happens. But then then he goes much further with this. 
Uh, Jesus says to you, verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So these Pharisees have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, what does blasphemy mean? Everybody knows it's bad, and you don't want to do it, but they're not quite sure what it is. I like to compare it to its opposite. When you blaspheme God, it is the opposite of glorifying God. So when you glorify God, you lift him up, you exalt him. When you blaspheme God, you tear him down, mm-hmm. you you besmirch him, you smear him, okay? How did the Pharisees do that? Well, just put it together for a minute. This guy was demonized to the point where he couldn't talk and couldn't see. And here, the Holy Spirit works through Jesus to heal this guy. First time in his life, probably, he can see and talk. Think of the glory of that. Wouldn't you just put your hand over your mouth and gasped and said, glory to God, this man's been delivered from this awful life. And who did this? The Holy Spirit. But now the Pharisees are saying that the demons did this? That is an insult of the first order of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, his attributes are love and kindness and mercy and compassion and tenderness with people. And it's showed with this, what are Satan's attributes? He's evil. He murders. He lies. He deceives. And so you're telling me that the wonderful, sweet Holy Spirit that did this for this man. No, it's the father of lies and the father of murder that did this. You're attributing this to that. That is tearing down the Holy Spirit. That is insulting him in the first order. And when Jesus says, this isn't forgivable, it's like, if you are that hard-hearted where you cannot give glory to God for something that was so obviously the work of God to do something so loving and wonderful for this guy, you're past the point of redemption. There's no coming back. And, you know, I think these Pharisees probably affirmed that because you didn't see anybody fall on their knees and say, oh, Jesus, please forgive me, and I repent. They probably gave him the Bronx cheer, you know. Well, so do you, you know, that that I don't... (laughs) I'm not bothered by that at all. They hated Jesus. They were opposed to him, and they'd made up their minds. And so this idea of the blasphemy of the Spirit, if you are so hardened and so against Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit that you would say that the Holy Spirit's work is demonic, that you've crossed the line. That's mm-hmm. what Jesus is saying. Because notice he says, you can blaspheme the Son, and it can be forgiven. So people can look at Jesus walking around on the earth and say, nah, He's not the Son of God. And they can be forgiven that because it's understandable that they just don't understand it. But to see the power of God through the Spirit displayed in this guy like this, <laughs> I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, I, it does make sense, yeah. yeah. So yeah. this is an order of sin against God that is probably about as bad as it can get. Mm-hmm. I was reading in, in Luke chapter 9, the first verse, it said, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. Yeah. I'm thinking, okay, now when we're calling the 12 together, including in that 12 would be Judas Iscariot. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden he's going out there and he's doing things like uh, driving out demons probably. Maybe. Uh, and maybe. Maybe, mm-hmm. he's, uh, maybe he's healed a blind person. Uh, but if he's had that power come through him, I don't know how he would have 
the desire to yeah here again turn away. you just don't know the inner workings of the I, of, I of the human heart and the decisions we make and the, the things that we do even to ourselves it's just beyond comprehension bill i don't have to worry about judas like that i have trouble figuring out why i do the things i do sometimes that you're just puzzled by your own thoughts your own feelings the things you choose to do and you go what was that so uh, we we are uh, some in some ways we're inscrutable as humans. Mm-hmm. So good, Mark. Thank you for a fast hour, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, we're kind of done. A lot they of good are. questions, though. Aren't these good questions? They are. People mm-hmm. are thinking. Keep yeah. th- asking questions. Keep probing your Bible. That's the way you'll learn. Yeah. And follow ups to the question about Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a mm. servant, being born in the likeness of men. Commentary says that it was uh, he voluntarily set aside divine attributes, including omniscience, but there were times that he did not have or use divine powers. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that. He did not set aside his divine attributes. He set aside the divine, the use of those divine okay. attributes. Okay. So if he set aside his attributes, he's no longer fully God. Right. Right. You got to be careful with yeah. that one. Great hour. Dr. Mark Musk has been my guest. That's our show for the day. And if you missed any of it, uh, listening to both hours, if you uh, are listening on the podcast, you can learn that at MyFaithRadio.com. I'm looking forward to our time tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.